0: Hello, everybody, again. I'm back, your regular host, Dan Fuller, after the callous seizure of the hosting duties by Anthony Hurley and Sam Fisher in the last episodes. I have recovered, but I have not forgiven them. <laughs> 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 I'm, I'm joined today by so Mayer. How are you doing, So?
1: I, I'm still reeling from the uncanny sensation of regular service being... Interrupted because your hosting duties have become the one reliable thing in this time of uncertainty.
0: well, I think our listeners are all very upset by it as well, and I think that Sam and Anthony should both be ashamed of themselves.
1: <laughs> there were also two Sams on one podcast, both of whom were excellent, but it was a it was a lot of Sam
0: too much Sam many Sam, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> um so who have we got? today. We've got some, we've got our, I think our third, no fourth international guest today I believe.
1: That's right. So we've been to Athens, we've been to Calcutta, we have been to New York and now we are going to Melbourne where we will be speaking to Alison Crogan, who is novelist, playwright, librettist, theatre critic, agitator, activist, cat owner, extraordinaire. She just announced today, actually, that the site that she runs, Witness Performance, which is a vital independent force in Australian performance writing, got some emergency funding from the, the State Arts Board, which she talks about a bit in our conversation. So they will be able to continue paying writers to write about what the pandemic and lockdown mean for live arts. Mm. And I just wanted to read that acknowledgement on the Witness homepage to tell you a bit about where Alison is. So the homepage says, Witness is proudly made on the traditional country of the Boon and Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And they respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners and their elders past and present. Sovereignty was never ceded.
0: Those are powerful words, I think um especially in a country with such complicated politics with regards to the colonial past so yeah thanks for sharing that with our listeners i think that will that will resonate with a lot of people um yeah um i'm having a brain fart <laughs> 90% of
1: podcasting is yeah. brain farting <laughs> like trying to cover over
0: brain farts <laughs> um so what did you guys What did you guys talk about?
1: Well, we were also really lucky to be joined by another guest who ironically lives right around the corner from me, but is as hard for me to see as Alison, who lives 6,000 miles away. Uh, Rebecca Polding, who is a consultant on local and community arts, and she's worked with cities and communities around the world on how to place arts and culture at the center of who they are. So she came on to talk to Alison and myself about what was happening uh, in Melbourne and Victoria and Australia more largely and how and why Community culture making and community attention to culture, holding culture accountable, matters now, and perhaps matters now more than ever. Is you know the powers that be try and sneak shit out, like the BBC. The first things that are going back into production on the BBC at EastEnders and Top Gear, and the head of BBC production, her whole editorial was written in like we're revving the engines of production so we can speed back.
0: It's all tiresome, isn't so it? We need... It's all tiresome.
1: <laughs> it's so tiresome, and it's so important for us to attend to it. I mean, we have so much else to think about, but we talk on the a bit on the podcast about the importance of of storytelling and holding memories and yeah, like holding things to account. So the story of this experience isn't just written as like posh people in their country houses pining on their beautiful garden benches or whatever.
0: Awesome. Well, <laughs> well on that note
1: My review of the eighty percent of novels that can be published. <laughs>
0: it. On that sweeping notes, I will pass over to the main part of the show, the part that you all actually enjoy listening to. The conversation. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Welcome back to Burley Fisher's Isolation Station. I am here in the ether uh, with two guests, one of whom could not be closer to me, although we cannot see each other due to lockdown, and the other of whom could not be farther away from me, yet we also cannot see each other. So time and space has been flattened between London and Melbourne, Australia, where we're joined by Alison Crogan and uh, also my neighbour, reader uh, and arts consultant and activist Rebecca Polding, Welcome to Isolation Station.
2: Thank you and it's lovely to be here in the, in the ether with both of you
3: wherever here is in these strange times.
1: <laughs> Just to establish perhaps a false sense of here-ness, Alison could you enliven our London lives by telling us something about the world outside, about what's what's happening in Melbourne right now.
2: What's happening in Melbourne? Okay, well, much the same as in everyone else. We're all in uh, lockdown, so we're under – I've got lost. We've got a whole tangle of regulations, state regulations and federal regulations, which in the end amount to you all stay in the house, so we've been – but. We've been in our house for about be the fourth week now. So fortunately, it's a nice house with yellow walls. I'm sitting in my study where they, I'm facing a, a nice big window with lace curtains. And if it were daytime, it's nighttime here. Um, I'd be looking out on a bunch of roses, which wow. make mm. isolation rather pleasant. If I have to be isolated, this house is good to be isolated in.
1: And did I hear a, a dog barking just before we started recording?
3: That might have been Albie.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so who are the other than human uh, guests we might have popping up on the podcast today?
2: Um, well, there are two cats in this house, but they, um, they're not very loud,
1: So they'll just be silent participants. And Rebecca, you have...
3: I have a creature that hovers somewhere between dog and cat. I mean, technically it's canine, but seeing as it sleeps in the lap and practically purrs, I'm not sure it understands the definitions. It's doing a lot of running around and barking, which is on the dog side, but then it will (laughs) insist on doing that right next to me and entangling itself in my legs, which is much more cat-like. Very anyway, yep. Albie
1: is here. Welcome, Albie and the cats of Melbourne as well. I've noticed that the British broadsheet press seem very keen on the Australian model of closing borders and imposing what's not quite martial law, but a very heavily policed lockdown. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes. It seems to be partially policed in that certain people get policed more than other certain people, as is often the case when there's this kind of lockdown. We're in the strange position where we have a conservative government, a liberal government here. But I live in one of the few states that has a Labour government, which is, yay, in lots of ways, it's a much better government than the Liberal government, but it is unfortunately a Labour government with many flaws. And it's very keen on policing and cutting down old growth forests and things, which are depressing things for a Labour government to be doing.
3: And why are they doing that? Is that a bid for popularity or some deeply held belief about creating jobs? That seems extraordinary.
2: I think they're locked in some kind of deal with loggers, but it's fairly disastrous. They're logging in water catchment areas. They're also logging in places that have been recently burned, which is absolutely catastrophic in terms of future fires and against all advice. So yes there's serious problems with this government and yet there is no alternative because the other government is literally nazi so <laughs>
1: yeah so in terms of you know the the covid situation which is obviously global but in melbourne sort of following fire flood storm and also neo nazi rally it must feel <laughs> <That's right. laughs> on the beach on the beach um, how's that that whole writing sort of post-apocalyptic science fiction and fantasy working out for you? Well, it's kind of interesting. <laughs> 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 kind of, you know, like
3: I think that blurs the definition of fantasy, doesn't it? When you describe that as what's currently going on.
1: Well, the series that. Alison and her partner Danny are working on, which began with the book Fleshers, has many very prescient aspects.
2: It's bizarre. One of the major things in this book is that people, or some of the people in this particular city can't touch each other. Yeah, And that's because we're working on the second book, or actually editing the second book, which was going to be out in June, and maybe still will be, but I've been a bit knocked sideways by recent events, capital R, capital E. <laughs> but, but um, yes, it was. It suddenly struck me how strange that was that in this new COVID world where I'm watching television and there's a whole lot of people in a party in a, a little room and I'm going, oh, they're all together, they're all too close. What's going on? And that's, a, that's an immediate thing that's happening. Mm. And it's a little strange, I have to say. Yeah, but everybody who writes any kind of dystopian science fiction is saying the same thing. You know, reality keeps overtaking us and (laughs) (laughs) you're always writing out of the present anyway. I mean, I think that's just true and um, you're drawing on things that are going on and slightly putting them into slant position with with the world as, as it is but um at the moment yes a little peculiar
1: are you tempted to change things while you're editing in a in a way um, of channeling the present or do you think that's a, a dangerous game to play
2: uh, the book i'm actually working on at the moment is a kind of memoir that's i'm in the middle of a rewrite and some a memoir, a personal, autobiographical, essays kind of book, and that that is definitely getting a COVID update,
1: <laughs>
3: a COVID coder. <laughs> oh, very
1: good.
2: Yeah, well, it's not a coder. It's like because the book is like it is, it it's not linear, and it's it's moves back and forth anyway. And I'm finding that. Actually, the pandemic is being quite clarifying for this particular book. But I think when I move on to editing Pinkers, which is the next book, I'm not sure we'll change anything in terms of what's happening now. We'll change things because they're not working very well, perhaps, that kind of
1: editing. Mm Just before the world changed, in an unbelievable rate of production, you had actually just published a new book in Australia and in the UK, The Threads of Magic, which was published here with Walker, which is your first yes. book for what, what are called middle grade readers or what we yes. call chapter books or books that anyone can enjoy because they're amazing.
3: I would like to point out that I am not a middle grader and I am a reader of The Threads of Magic and I would wholeheartedly recommend it to a very wide range of people, whether they like fantasy, chapter books, picture books or whatever. Especially now.
1: What, why especially now?
3: I'm, I'm finding I'm reading lots of fantasy right now, actually. Mm. Other worlds are quite nice places to be in. Other magical worlds where there is a hero, where there is defined hope, where there are clear rules a lovely places to spend time. Um, and they tend to be brilliantly written with fabulous metaphors and humour and wit, which is what I'm finding I need. I also mm. need something that doesn't call for as much for me in terms of soul searching. I'm not drawn mm. to sci-fi like Solaris, which is very psychological <laughs> and painful. I need things that can cope (laughs) with my limited powers of concentration and the limited amount of additional nuance that I'm capable to bring to things at the moment, which is really very small. So sci-fi and fantasy seem to be it. I've also gone back to the Crestomancy series and in a similar vein to Dorothy L Sayers, again, where worlds are very clearly defined and there are heroes and you can enjoy the certainties and the uncertainties knowing there'll be a resolution.
2: Strangely, I've found among the more comforting things, I've been watching a whole lot of Nordic noir series that are incredibly bleak. (laughs) (laughs) but i find it strangely comforting i'm sure it's you know it's not that they end up in any kind of optimistic place
1: or
3: begin or have a middle oh. period in such a place <laughs> either yeah
2: that's right <laughs> uh, i mean that you know they, they, these kind of bleak crime shows that nevertheless you find out what happened that's as far as it gets there's no you know mm. there's always be the being devastated at the end or something but and i can i, I find that as i said strangely comforting I'm disturbed by that but i think it's because the one thing i've noticed about all these shows is they're all about trauma perhaps because it's a trauma that's not the trauma that seems to be going on right now here in this world where i'm you know presently living it's a different trauma (laughs) that is to some extent exposed if not resolved and and strangely as i said that's comforting
1: and also in Nordic Noir, I find that when they do um, landscape shots, they have a tendency for people to stand at least six feet apart, often heavily gloved. <laughs> <laughs> it's very reassuring world of natural social distancing. Yes, I see. You have to get that, to get those like wonderful perspective shots and stress that you're alienation, the deep yeah. alienation of the characters. You know, everyone stands really far apart around Lake, and you're like, it's fine. They're on their daily walk in nature. <laughs>
3: And a kind of pathetic fallacy. The whole world has gone dark, bleak, blasted trees.
1: But someone, someone (laughs) with an ethical code, will emerge alone because they're always alone. (laughs) and, And and crack. They can't necessarily change change the world, but they can perhaps solve. Maybe the the next runner will be like Nordic science shows. Maybe like breaking bad but really really serious like someone working on a covid cure in their garage
2: well that's entirely possibly being made right now in a big jumper
1: (laughs) with gloves yes (laughs) (laughs) and folk music
3: oh folk but with a sort of eerie haunting whale element to it as well i think
1: i that i think that's Part of what I liked about Threads of Magic, or loved about Threads of Magic, is that it does have an eerie, haunting whale quality wrapped mm. up in... <laughs> the, the, there's all the you know the familiar pieces are on the board, but the game doesn't in any way play out as you expect. I think it's probably the first fantasy novel I've ever read that starts with princesses and ends with participatory democracy. Not a <laughs> too massive spoiler for anyone. Yeah,
2: I, I really enjoyed writing this one. And it actually came out of the continuing negative news cycle that's been going on for the last, well, you know, 20 years, let's be honest, but intensifying over the last few. And I wanted to write something cheerful. <laughs>
3: <laughs> How I would I do you like- literally put the dark <laughs> things in a box, yeah. locked with a key? <laughs> That's it's right. It's like a portable Nordic noir that keeps sort of escaping, and it's very haunting <laughs> and very beautiful. But it is in a box, That's and right. only when people are ready can it be emotionally dealt with.
2: That's right. Daniel read it. My husband came in after reading it, and he
3: said, "You call this lighthearted? That's funny bit." What I also liked about it is that the heroes make a lot of mistakes. Everybody Mm. makes terrible mistakes, and I, as a very flawed, normal human being, found that tremendously reassuring. I mean, it's not cheerful, but it is reassuring. Yeah, well, people do make mistakes. We all make mistakes.
1: I have a question about this. Something that has weighed on my mind for, I suppose, the 20 plus years that I have been a supposedly adult reader, Mm. which is about actually the relationship of, of writers as flawed normal human beings to what their texts can accomplish so when you read a book by a writer that has this great wisdom I think the the books of Pelennor which was your your first fantasy series which Mm. is from nearly 20 years ago now astonishingly yep started nearly 20 years ago has this incredible insight was one of the first big fantasy series to take ecological issues to put them really Mm -hmm. at the center but also to really think about how we collectively face evil insidious evil face them in ourselves as well and Mm. it can seem as as if the writer has all this great wisdom and which i know you do but (laughs) i guess what i'm getting at (laughs) is is that that gap between (laughs) all of us as flawed human beings and the things that we know the ethical things that we know are right the Mm. insights that we have and the gap between that and actually being able to live or do that day to day does that make any sense whatsoever it absolutely does
2: and i know exactly what you're talking about i mean i suppose when you know when you're thinking about making stories and writing or making anything somewhere deep in there it's not consciously but it is a kind of making there's an, an element to that of try, sorry I'm being really kind of vague here but there's an element where you're you're trying to work out things that bother you and and an ethical way through them and the fiction is a kind of way of thinking about that without thinking about it directly if that makes mm. sense I mean a lot of writing is tricking yourself I think and I do put into anything I write the things that Matter to me the things I value; those are the things I think about. Things that hurt me. I think I think every writer does that, and the things that one hopes to be. I suppose that in a way you're kind of aspirational, but yourself. Mm. Yeah, I'm constantly in the position where I feel like I'm failing that, but as I've got older. Which I inexorably am. I, um, I'm kind of okay with that. Being driven by a kind of relentless perfectionism is not no way to live and often very destructive. And it's important to be patient with one's own faults as much as with others.
1: I can't imagine that Helen or readers right now will not be drawing parallels between this and a certain character. <laughs>
3: What a cliffhanger. What a cliffhanger. <laughs> How many copies of the Pelinor series does Burley Fisher have? Because you're going to need a lot. And I'm first in line.
1: we have all of them so if you would like to order a copy of of threads of magic or the Palinor series you can email us you can also check out alison's website for some very generous sharing of her writing online and if you're interested in fleshers which is a self-published book so do you go straight to the source for that one and this seems like a good time to say that alison has not stopped with just working on three books at the moment and also an opera libretto which premiered literally just before lockdown, but also co-edits an incredible online magazine of theatre criticism, Witness, which is currently doing some amazing thinking about remembering performance and the place that live performance has in our collective imaginary and how we keep it in mind. Online, it's totally supported by its readers. So read it and have a look at it. And I think also as as part of Witness or your role in Witness, you're trying to take a measure of how Covid's hit the Australian theatre scene. Is that is that right?
2: Yes, I mean one of my many hats is also as well as a performance critic. I'm also an arts journalist. So I wrote when the theatres all closed down, which was mid March. I wrote a thing just looking at what that was going to mean for the arts sector here, which is obviously nothing good, and that's kind of multiplied by. Uh, government which is extremely hostile to the arts
3: and what measures have been put in place Alison to support people in the arts because what we've seen here in the UK is that there's been a huge time lag that there have been government measures to support businesses and the self-employed and yet it's taken a long time for those measures to catch up to the different circumstances of culture and creative workers yeah who've been left out in the first rounds and have had to advocate and play catch-up, despite the fact that what everyone is seeing in these times is that the thing that everyone needs more than anything else is culture and creativity to get people through. Well, all that, I'm afraid, is really,
2: really awfully familiar. So the government put through a package yesterday. They've suddenly turned into socialists like conservative governments (laughs) <laughs> and they've put. A well, our
1: Chancellor <laughs> just said it will have to be paid back somehow, which is the most yes. Terminator-ish sentence.
2: Yes, no, there, there there will be punitive measures later, but for the meantime, so they they actually done a lot more than most of us expected.
3: But I did have a theory uh, they, at one point that COVID nineteen had been inv- invented by the Guardian as a <laughs> virus that didn't hurt children or really most people very much but did reinforce the sense that there was a need for state support and government that people had social responsibility for each other we should live more locally based lives be less <laughs> polluting
1: apart from the fact that it it does seem to be More dangerous for children than originally assumed, and also that Bernie Sanders dropped out of the presidential or the Democrat nomination race yesterday is a plausible theory.
3: Thank you. I am an accredited scientist,
1: (laughs) and a fantasy is true. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
2: well, yeah, but like uh, as in UK, there is no specific, well, very little specific packages for the arts, and of course. Artists and arts workers don't get incomes irregular, as we all know, and that means a lot of people are missing out. So it's bad.
1: Have you seen any creative, resourceful responses alongside Witnesses Project? Are there other responses you're seeing from your your multiple overlapping hat-based communities?
2: Well, it's. I mean, I'm. I love to, the idea of a hat-based community. I
1: do. Too,
2: yes. yes. No hats are good. Um, there's two festivals. One that was about to start next month, which is um, one of the. Fest- it's a biannual festival. Very cleverly done. They work with young artists for over over a year, developing work, which then sometimes two years, um, right. developing work, which is then presented during the festival in all sorts of really interesting ways obviously the festival going ahead in that is envisaged but they're still going ahead and they're thinking really carefully about how they're going to present it not this sort of rush online thinking that streaming is going to substitute for the kinds of experiences um, they're trying to think through in some careful way what it actually means so that sounds like it could be t- potentially very interesting and likewise a uh, manifest bleed, which was originally envisioned a, a series of artistic responses to how digital life and physical life intertwine and how they relate they are also going ahead but they're trying trying to think it through sorry i'm losing my voice you know again in interesting ways as opposed to it's not enough just to stream what it mean to put an event on the internet and can you do that? And um, and I think some, some interesting stuff will come out of that. But um, I think mainly at the moment people are still in shock because this has come in the context of ongoing cuts. Last Friday uh, cut a third of independent mm. companies.
1: Yikes. And, Rebecca, you've been working sort of – across Europe looking at uh, um, cities and culture and arts funding have you see, seen or heard any creative good examples of how responses are perhaps slowly taking taking shape as Alison said not the immediate but thinking about the future
3: I think what I've seen from all the different cities I've worked with is the same thing that we've just been discussing there one is that you know. the creative and cultural ecosystems are incredibly fragile Mm. and vulnerable Mm. and this hits them so hard and so fast but that they're also incredibly innovative and people are coming up with the most wonderful things to do ways of Mm. connecting and being creative at the moment you know Mm. that it just seems like this incredible unstoppable force um and as I i was saying before that the importance of this more than ever cannot be overstated. (laughs) You know, whether you're streaming something Mm. or sending or creating uh, little viral memes (laughs) or singing (laughs) to each other on Mm. balconies, Mm. you know, we, we bury this time and time again, the fact that culture is actually important to us. It's not a nice little Um, add-on. And it's been interesting talking to people about the extent to which that has Mm. been recognised or not. So in Amsterdam, the city is having to make the argument for the economic case for culture yet again, trying to say that there are a lot of jobs involved here and it's very productive Mm. and we need Mm. to support this because of our tourism industry when COVID is finished. Mm. Whereas the Portuguese, having spoken to Lisbon, they are much more open to the creative arguments. In the same way that I have to say that the Mayor of London's team here at the GLA are, they've been fantastically supportive um, and open. Their their entire team...
1: Socialist government. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, it's a bad... Yeah, I mean,
3: everyone who works in the culture team at the GLA deserves a massive shout out. I know how hard they are all working at the moment and they Mm. have all converted Mm. themselves into what they call a giant culture at risk office. So anyone working in culture, whether you run a theatre or you're a freelance artist, can ring them and explain the ways in which culture is at risk and they will Mm -hmm. mobilise to try and help you find the right support, whether that's putting you in touch with the council or a government resource or helping you negotiate with a landlord um and that's a team wow. of 35 people who are now all dedicated to doing that that's, that's... i know and it just reminds you what an amazing group of people there are that's and, incredible. you know words i don't hear often and didn't particularly expect to say the arts council england have been extraordinary i mean The amount of time it normally takes this very bureaucratic, naturally cautious, overshadowed governmentally sensitive organisation to come (laughs) up with a new fund or do anything is extraordinary. They've been consulting on maybe releasing a bit of their new strategy for the past two and a half years. And within 10 days, 10 days, they had changed all the conditions for their existing funding streams. Dropped some, decided which to keep going, taken out all of their reserves, put all of their reserves into a big basket called supporting culture during the global pandemic and said, right, this is what we do right now. This is the priority. We're betting the farm on it. No hedging, no saving something because someone else might change their mind later. And that fund was up and running, published, going out, supporting people in 10 days. I know. Uh, I'm so envious because
2: there, is, there have been, I mean, the Australia Council, which has very few resources, um, although its next funding runs of the year and has come into what is ultimately a very small emergency fund for people, but, uh, and they've been doing, you know, what they can. They've obviously been, and that happened quickly, but there's nothing like that here. And still waiting on the Victorian government which will probably do something because they have that very instrumental view about the arts, creative industries, mm. which, you know, look sideways at but it does mean that they'll put money into it sometimes. And so we'll wait and see. But something like that kind of imaginative mobilization we're just not seeing here. And it's very discouraging. You know, it's the end of something and we've just got to think of another way to do things because it's just going to get worse here. And I I think that's mm. the truth. I mean, this is without the pandemic, which has just wiped, mm. obviously has wiped.
3: So, yeah, we, we don't know what that will mean. Yeah, not everyone's in the same boat.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I think what we will have is an official culture that is ring-fenced and is the least interesting
1: work. Very much like in Fleshers, there does feel like there's a massive, yeah, it is a massive physical, physicalized retrenchment of that gap between. The elites and the rest of us, and that that is that will yeah. be retrenched within an official culture of disinformation and propaganda beneath which a resourceful, <laughs> innovative but also absolutely exhausted, burnt out in mourning, communitarian culture, energized in some way, devastated in other ways. Yeah. we'll continue making, we'll continue making for whoever is there. And that feels like, that feels very close it to the stories that, that you tell in your in your fiction. <laughs> I wonder where they came from. <laughs> this grand wow. scale battle of good against evil is actually you versus the Victoria it's Arts council. Council. <laughs> Reimagined as the <laughs> Dark Lord. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that that's fair. No, no one's going to how do we defeat him in his latest uprising and i'm aware that we should we should all be careful of our pulmonary resources <laughs> and nurture our voices and our breath in in the coming weeks. Although JK, J.K. Rowling is wrong. Breathing exercises cannot stop you they getting they do help uranium. pass the time. They do help pass the time, but they cannot empty your alveoli.
3: There are limits <laughs> to fantasy novels, kids.
1: That's a topic for the premium content. Yes, we're, our beef with J.K. Rowling is going to go offline now, so you'll just have to imagine it. And it just remains to me to thank a far Greater and more thoughtful, and careful and poetic fantasy novelist Alison Crogan. You are missing out if you're not reading her, and also the equally fantastic and thoughtful Rebecca Polding, who not only helps the arts around the world but also is what all writers need: a dedicated reader. Thank you for
3: having us, and onward, Burley Fisher.
1: Yay! Yes,
3: please. <laughs> <laughs> Do
1: no, it's a little soldiers. bit
3: dirge-like. We need to rethink that.
1: Send us your uh, ideas for hymn-related Burley Fisher jingles at podcast at com. See you soon.
0: Awesome. Well, as ever, thank you so much to Alison and Rebecca for giving us their time. Um, these are incredibly important conversations and it's a real privilege for us at Burley Fisher to be able to spread the word internationally as it were.
1: I'm going to follow that up with a a shout out for our Australian listeners for the Sun Bookshop uh, in Melbourne. Yay! Uh, uh, An indie which we've come to think of as our Australian cousin so you can email us if you're a UK listener and there are books that you're interested in, including Alison's new book, The Threads of Magic. And if you're in Oz, do not forget to hit up The Sun. Yeah. Sounds really yeah. weird.
0: In the solidarity. Oh, we keep ending with solidarity, I think. so. Yeah.
1: Obviously, think... and if you're in the UK, don't read The Sun.
0: <laughs> yeah, don't read Let The same Sun. with <laughs> that. <laughs> yeah, don't read The Sun. Peace out, everybody. Bye from me, Dan Fuller.
1: And from me, So Mayer. Love and blessings! Bye-bye!